Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. So it's National Police Week, and National Police Week pays special recognition to those law enforcement officers who have lost their lives in the line of duty. And well, today I am bringing you a terrifying tale of one man's fight versus the LAPD. What happens when a prior police officer plots for years against the same police department that brought him in? Yet this prior police feels jilted by the entire organization. Maybe it was racism or maybe it was something else. This story has two distinct sides. Those that support the subject of this episode and hail him as a hero, and those who think he's a monster. We'll explore all angles and let you make your own decision whether he was a victim or villain, or maybe a little bit of both. Join me today as we peel back the layers of Navy veteran Christopher Dorner. Now, let's dig in. This episode was researched and written by listener and fan club member Myrtle. Sources include articles from the Los Angeles Times, Orange County Register, Baltimore Sun, The Atlantic, Independent Reporter Andrew E. Met, and web sources LAist.com, NPR, Officer.com, BBC News, Enid News, CNN, The Standard Examiner, Dorner versus Los Angeles Police Department, a memorandum dated January 22, 2016 from the Justice System Integrity Division, and a copy of an interdepartmental correspondence memorandum from the Chief of Police to the Board of Police Commissioners dated June 17, 2013. And I just want to say, wow, so many thanks to Myrtle, who did a bang-up job on this episode. And by bang-up job, I mean she did a really great job researching this episode. An article in Psychology Today identifies the different motivations that drive serial killers. The first, you have visionary killers. They believe that they are being ordered to commit murder by God or another entity. Then you have the mission-oriented killers who consider it their duty to rid the world of specific groups of people. There's hedonistic killers who are driven to murder for either sexual gain or thrill. Others need power or domination or sometimes both. But what about a killer that doesn't fit into any of those categories? If they kill more than two people, that means they're a serial killer, right? Well, according to the FBI, there is a distinction between a serial killer and a killer who commits two or more murders without a cooling off period. The lack of a cooling off period is what differentiates a serial killer from what is known as a spree killer. And today we are talking about a spree killer. In February of 2013, the entire nation was glued to their televisions, watching the live news coverage of the massive manhunt for Christopher Dorner, a former Los Angeles city cop who was wanted in connection with three murders that took place in L.A. over the span of two days. 
What led to the need for cops to hunt a fellow law enforcement officer? Where did things go so wrong that all of Southern California was on lockdown? They were terrified of where this officer was and when he was going to strike next. Christopher Jordan Dorner was born on June 4, 1979 in New York State, but he moved to Los Angeles with his mother, Nancy Dorner, and his sister, Natasha, before he was a year old. There isn't much said about his father other than a brief mention or two in articles, so I'm not sure if the father moved to L.A. with them and then left or if he was already out of their lives before they left New York. According to Dorner's manifesto, he was the only black kid in his classes from first to seventh grade, and the neighborhoods they lived in were less than 1% black. He recalled an incident at Norwalk Christian School where he was called racial slurs by a fellow student on the playground. He retaliated with a swift kick and a punch. The bully ran away crying to a teacher, but as it turned out, both he and Dorner were punished with swats from the principal. The principal chastised Chris for not turning the other cheek like the Bible says to do. And in his head, there was no escape or protection for him from racism. The day he was swatted for standing up for himself. Well, on that day, he made a vow to himself that he would never again tolerate racially derogatory terms spoken to him. After a handful of moves in Southern California, the family eventually found themselves in Cyprus, a small city just south of L.A. where Dorner attended Cyprus High School. He had grown to a height of 5 foot 11 inches and weighed a whopping 225 pounds. So it made sense that he joined the football team. In high school, he learned about an organization called Young Police Explorers in nearby La Palma's police department. It was a program where teens could start training to be police officers while they were still in school. And this was one of those ah! moments for Christopher Dorner. Dorner felt as though he had found his calling in life when he joined the program. Despite being involved with the police training, he continued to feel as though he had no protection from racism. In his manifesto, he wrote about a time when his watch was stolen from his high school locker. According to Dorner, an assistant principal told him he knew who took the watch because a kid had stolen a list of combinations and was likely the suspect of that theft and many others. Well, Dorner tried to get his watch back from this particular student and campus security was called. Chris tried to explain, hey, listen, I, he got my watch. He got my watch. I just I just need some help. Well, the assistant principal denied that he ever told Dorner who had stolen the list of combinations. Again, Christopher felt like he was not supported by the people that should have been protecting him. After graduating high school, Christopher attended Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah, where he continued to play football on the school's team as a running back. According to his teammate and friend, James Usera, Dorner told him that a particular coach on the team was racist. It was another area that Dorner felt outnumbered. Cedar City is mainly populated by white Mormon conservatives. Usera and Dorner grew close and would have friendly debates about politics and the extent of racism in the U.S. Dorner actually credits Usera, who was from Alaska and is now a lawyer in Oregon, as teaching him about the outdoors in his manifesto. A self-proclaimed city boy, Dorner learned to hunt and fish with his friend, and he gained a respect for the land and resources. Dorner thanks Usera for introducing him to PBR, the beer, writing that it was a great beer for a poor college student. Dorner graduated from college in 2001 with a degree in political science and a minor in psychology. A year after graduating from college, Christopher Dorner was commissioned as an ensign in the United States Navy Reserve, and he was sent to pilot training. 
While in pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, Dorner, along with Marine Corps Lieutenant Andrew Bogger, I believe, they noticed a bank bag laying in the middle of the road while driving into the town of Enid. They turned back, picked up the bag, and when they looked inside, they found close to $8,000 in cash and checks. That's about $11,000 in today's dollars. The young officers immediately took the bag to the police department in Enid. There, they learned that the money was a deposit for a church in Enid. Turns out that the pastor had put the envelope on top of the car, forgot to grab it before he got in and drove off. It never occurred to the two young men to keep the money. In an article written in the Enid News and Eagle, Christopher and Andrew were quoted as saying, quote, it's an integrity thing, end quote. The article went on to talk about how both men were raised to know the value of being honest and that integrity was stressed in their military training. In another statement, Dorner said that, quote, it's not so much the integrity, but it was someone else's money. I would hope someone would do that for me, end quote. The article said that Dorner was at Vance Air Force Base training with hopes to fly SH-60 helicopters. In a reprint of the story, the Enid News and Eagle reported a Navy spokesperson saying that Dorner served at various aviation training units from 2002 to 2004. That year, he was assigned to a mobile inshore undersea warfare unit. The unit's mission is to provide surveillance operations and intelligence collection in a rapidly deployable package. During his training, he achieved expert pistol and rifle marksmanship. Now, remember, Dorner was only a part of the Navy Reserve, so that means he could have a full-time job in the civilian sector. Dorner joined the Los Angeles Police Department in 2005, entering the police academy in February along with Class 2-05 with an anticipated graduation date of August 2005. Due to some injuries that happened during training, he was recycled to class 5-05. This time, graduation would have happened in January of 2006. However, sometime during this class, he negligently discharged his weapon while cleaning it, shooting himself in the hand. Yikes! Whoa. Due to that injury, he was placed on suspension and recycled one more time to class 7-05. Finally, graduating from the police academy in March of 2006. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts, but I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now, and in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer, and she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. 
And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. In his manifesto, Dorner accused the LAPD of being racist. During his police training, he witnessed fellow recruits casually using the N-word and taunting a Jewish trainee by singing Nazi Hitler youth songs. The trainee's father was a Holocaust survivor. This really bothered Dorner. He wrote more about the racism he encountered at the academy during an incident that happened while driving in a passenger van with other trainees. Dorner said that he heard the N-word being used by two officers sitting in the back of the van. He turned around and told them it was offensive and it shouldn't be used, to which the officers retaliated with one saying, quote, I'll say it when I want to, end quote. His writing goes on to describe a second officer, a friend of the first one, who also said he could use the N-word whenever he wanted to. Now, Dorner was pissed. He jumped over the front passenger seat across recruits seated in the middle row, grabbed the two officers by the neck. At that point, the rest of the officers intervened and pulled them all apart, which must have been a struggle considering Dorner was a big ass dude. Internal Affairs investigated the incident and could only corroborate one witness statement besides Dorner. Six other officers was like, oh, no, I don't know what happened. I didn't hear the N-word. What? One of the two officers that Dorner said used a racial epithet was given a 22-day paid suspension. Wait, what? Paid? Well, because it was a paid suspension after the 22 days, that person was able to continue training and was ultimately employed with the LAPD. First of all, I'm confused. The result seems counterintuitive. If the statement wasn't corroborated, why give the guy a paid suspension? Almost like they had a suspicion that Dorner wasn't lying, but not enough to proceed. So the alleged perpetrator was given a three-week vacation, basically, right? (laughs) Yikes. Dorner refers to the suspension as, quote, a slap on the wrist, end quote, in his manifesto. To add insult to injury, a detective filed a 1.28 report on Dorner, which, according to the LAPD website, is a complaint of employee misconduct. Just like when he was swatted in elementary school, Dorner felt retaliated against for fighting racism and not afforded protection or support by those in charge. After spending four months on the streets of L.A. training, Dorner was called up to active duty in July of 2006, and he was shipped out on a 12-month mobilization tour. Part of his deployment was spent in Kuwait, where a fellow service member named Jamie Koyama was deployed with him. She said he took part in football games and watched out for stray cats. In an article in the Orange County Register, she referred to him as, quote, a really, really nice guy. He always had a smile on his face, end quote. Christopher was awarded the Iraq Campaign Medal because part of his tour was spent guarding sea rigs out near Iraq. Shortly after he returned from his tour, he married an undercover narcotics agent named April Carter in Los Angeles. Although the marriage was short-lived, it lasted like a month. It apparently, though, didn't stop them from frequently seeing each other after the divorce 
And Dorner was frequently seen at April's house, helping her with yard work, even after they had already been divorced. I tried to get more information about his short marriage, but I couldn't find anything. Christopher soon settled back in with the LAPD as a rookie officer. This part of police training can last up to 18 months. And remember, he had only done four months before he got activated. He was assigned to field training officer named Sergeant, then Officer, Teresa Evans in the San Pedro Division. Soon after they were paired together, Evans grew concerned with Dorner's conduct on duty and began to document his performance. Dorner recognized his shortcomings and repeatedly asked why he wasn't offered reintegration training after he returned from his deployment. He even broke down in tears at one point and demanded to be taken back to the police academy to be retrained. Evans noted that there were deficiencies in how Dorner was performing his duties as a police officer. Like one time, he didn't even take cover when talking to a suspect on a call where there was a man with a gun reported. Dorner confessed that he may have some issues regarding his deployment. You think? So mind you, he had gone through police training, having been recycled a few times. Then he was out training on the field for four months before he was called away for a year. And he came back and he felt like he didn't know anything. On July 28, 2007, officers Dorner and Evans were dispatched to a Doubletree Hotel in San Pedro for a disturbing the peace call. The suspect was sitting outside of the hotel when they first arrived. The suspect was not being responsive, so Dorner took him by the arm and tried to lead him away from the hotel. The man, who is schizophrenic and has dementia, but they don't know it by this point, was identified as Christopher Gettler. Gettler went with him willingly at first, but then swore at the police officers, pulled away and tried to make a run for it. While Evans called for backup, Dorner attempted to gain control of Gettler, who was trying to hit him. In the process of trying to control Gettler, Dorner took him down to the ground by force, falling together as Dorner tackled him, and they landed together in a planter that had some bushes growing in it. Ouch! Gettler landed face first in the bushes, with Dorner ending up on top of him. Gettler continued to resist and refused to show his hands. In an effort to gain control of the situation, Evans took Dorner's taser and deployed it twice on Gettler. But Gettler still refused to follow the officer's instructions. Officer Evans then went to the other side of Gettler and Dorner, where she tried to put handcuffs on him. What happened next is Dorner's account of the arrest. Evans was unable to get Gettler's arm to handcuff it even after tasing him. She swung her foot back like she was kicking a ball and hit Gettler once in the face and twice in the chest with her foot. Gettler then allowed them to place the handcuffs on his wrist. Then he was placed in the police cruiser. A small scratch was noticeable on Gettler's face. Dorner and Evans called for a supervisor to report the arrest and to also discuss the force used to take Gettler into custody. Sergeant Jackson arrived on scene and took their verbal report. When they arrived at the police station, Gettler was looked over by another sergeant and examined by a physician. The scratch was noted on Gettler's face. In a transcript from Dorner's appellate court case, Evan describes that she and Dorner discussed what happened at the hotel together so that they could write the report. According to Evans, Chris took too long and he asked so many questions about how to fill out the use of force portion of the report that the report had to be revised three times by Evans and the supervisor, Sergeant Jackson. 
Evans said they had to rewrite the report because Dorner didn't know what specific information had to be included to accurately document what happened when he tackled Gettler. Dorner couldn't remember the right codes and the verbiage because it had been more than a year since he graduated from the academy. He wrote that Gettler's facial injury occurred during the arrest and nothing else was written about other injuries or about Evans kicking Gettler. Dorner later stated that he was hesitant to report the kicks because he feared that he would be retaliated against for mentioning it. Eventually, though, Dorner decided he was unhappy with the way they submitted the report, and he called a friend, Sergeant Perez, a fellow Navy reservist who worked in internal affairs. He wanted advice. While Chris was trying to reach Perez, Perez was out of town, but they did get to talk, although the calls were short. Sergeant Perez told Dorner, hey, stop talking and to immediately report it to his supervisor. He told Dorner that if he did not make the report, then Perez would be forced to report it himself. On August 10th, 2007, two plus weeks after the Doubletree arrest, Dorner reported Officer Evans' use of excessive force in the arrest of Christopher Gettler. He reported it to Assistant Watch Commander Sergeant Deming. Dorner told Deming that he witnessed Evans kicking Gettler once in the face and twice in the chest. After being kicked, Gettler then said, quote, is this all you want? End quote. And he gave up his right arm to Dorner, allowing him to finally get handcuffed. Dorner explained to Sergeant Deming that he didn't report the kicks on the day of the arrest because he thought the supervisor that arrived at the hotel only wanted to know what he did, not what Evans did. He heard the supervisor on scene tell Evans that the two officer stories were the same. So he knew then that Evans did not report the kicks. According to Dorner, he did not feel like he was comfortable telling the supervisor at that time because that supervisor and Evans were friends. Christopher was also hesitant to report the kicks because of his experience during the academy when after he turned in fellow trainees for using racial slurs, he was the one that got in trouble. After that, the other trainees would not talk to him and avoided him for the remainder of their time at the police academy. Later, he said that Evans asked him if he felt the use of force was appropriate. He agreed with her because he didn't want to have any conflicts with her and he just didn't want to have any problems. According to Dorner, Evans told him that they weren't going to include the kicks in that report because, you know, she was trying to get promoted and she didn't want to have all these use of force occurrences in her record. Wait, what? Girl, what's wrong with you? You out there kicking all the criminals? What's up? Let, let me find out. <laughs> in later testimony, Sergeant Deming said that Dorner was near tears while he was telling him about the incident and that while he was telling him, he feared retaliation for reporting his training officer. Deming went on to testify that Dorner begged him to not say anything, but Deming told him that he was obligated to report it and couldn't just dismiss it. A few days after he turned in the updated report, Dorner went to the watch commander to tell him that someone at the station had peed on his equipment bag. Some had even gotten on his jacket, making it wet. Ooh, that's gross. Chris was convinced that it was done in retaliation for reporting that Evans had kicked Gettler. Later, though, an analysis was done on the substance found in his jacket, and it was determined not to be urine. Thank goodness. But the substance was never identified. Why would Christopher Dorner lie about Evans kicking Gettler? What motivation would he have? Dorner has been characterized by his friends as a man of integrity. Remember the bag of cash he found when in flight school? Someone who wanted to serve his country and community and really just be a help to others. 
I know you always hear that so-and-so is such a nice person after shootings and attacks, but Dorna's friends really believe that. In an article from CNN from his college roommate, James Ucera, he was quoted as saying, quote, Chris was a guy who was approachable, had a good sense of humor, was fun to be around, intelligent, good conversationalist, and the list goes on and on and on. A former neighbor said he was, quote, a nice, friendly guy, easy to approach, end quote. In all the pictures you see of Dorner, he has a warm, wide, friendly smile that is reflected in his eyes. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. All right, let's go back and talk about the Doubletree incident report. A discrepancy existed between Dorner and his training officer, Sergeant Teresa Evans' account of the arrest. Dorner's initial report indicated that Gettler received a small scratch on his face following a takedown maneuver that ended up with Gettler face down in some bushes. Well, two weeks after Gettler's arrest, field training officer Evans warned Dorner if she didn't see improvement in his training progress, that she would issue an unsatisfactory performance evaluation. The evaluation would include areas to improve on, like officer safety, common sense, and good judgment as well as a recommendation that he be removed from patrol. The day after he received this warning about the potential unfavorable evaluation, that was when he made a report of excessive force against Evans saying, you know what? She kicked Gettler in the face and chest when he resisted while being arrested. Evans denied the accusation, but in any event, because it was reported, a use of force investigation was opened to determine the truth. On October of 2007, an internal affairs investigation into Dorner's accusation against Evans got underway and witnesses from the day of the arrest were interviewed. Employees from the Doubletree Hotel and the responding supervisor, Sergeant Jackson, they made statements that contradicted Dorner's statement of use of force. The two hotel employees testified that they never saw Evans kick Gettler. In fact, the witnesses described the way Evans was standing would have prevented her from being able to kick at all. Also, immediately following the incident, Christopher Gettler didn't mention that he had been hit or kicked to anyone. In fact, the scratch on Gettler's cheek was documented by Sergeant Jackson and the physician, and it was basically determined to have been caused by him falling face first into a bush. 
Testimony continued, including testimony that Gettler did not have any shoe marks on his face or on the white T-shirt he was wearing, and there were no visible bruising signs. Sergeant Jackson, the supervisor who responded to the scene that day, he testified that he and Officer Evans made revisions on the first report because it was taking Dorner way too long to finish the use of force portion. Sergeant Jackson, along with Officer Evans, made the changes so that they could better describe the actions taken. They had to step in and take over because Dorner couldn't remember the right words to use. Investigators tried to interview the arrestee, but they were told by his family that he was incapable of answering questions due to severe mental illness of schizophrenia and dementia. After all of the testimony was complete, the Board of Investigation determined that Officer Evans never kicked Christopher Gettler and Dorner had in fact lied about it. Dorner was charged with making false accusations against Officer Evans and a December border rights hearing got underway. Dorner was represented by a former LAPD captain turned lawyer, Randall Kwan. Now, Kwan insisted that Dorner had done the right thing, reporting that Sergeant Evans had kicked Gettler, acknowledging that Dorner should have reported them earlier, especially like when it happened, and referred to Dorner as a scapegoat, noting the case was an ugly one. During the hearing, Dorner stuck to his story about Evans kicking Gettler during the arrest. He also stayed true to his earlier testimony about fearing retaliation from the department because while attending police academy, he had reported the racial language used by fellow officers and was treated badly by them because of it. He told the board that he did not say anything about it initially because Sergeant Jackson had only asked about what he did and not about what Sergeant Evans did. Christopher Gettler's father, that's the victim, the victim's father's name was Richard. He was also called as a witness at this hearing. He testified that when his son was brought home by the police, Gettler said the police kicked him once in the face and twice in the chest. Despite being alarmed by that information, he decided not to report it to the police because Gettler couldn't tell him why he was kicked and that most of the time when questioned about anything, Gettler would give yes as the response. Randall Kwan, the attorney, recorded an interview with Christopher Gettler in his office and showed the video during the hearing. In the recording, Gettler says that he was kicked by a female that was almost black with dark hair. Then he corrects himself and changes his answer to the hair color as being light. Now, it should be noted that Sergeant Evans is actually white and has blonde hair. Gettler was then brought into the hearing but was unable to give the current year, and at times he gave odd answers that didn't relate to the questions he was being asked. He told the board that he couldn't remember what happened and thought that a club was used on him by the officers. Sergeant Evans was called to the stand and emphatically denied kicking Gettler. She had been placed on desk duty during the internal affairs investigation that precluded her from earning extra money, pulling overtime and testified that it was a difficult time for her personally. The hotel employees and Sergeant Jackson all testified that they did not witness Sergeant Evans kicking Gettler. Ultimately, the board made up of two LAPD captains and a defense attorney ruled against Dorner. Their determination was that Dorner wasn't credible and that he made the false report. And they said that he made the false report because he thought he would lose his career due to the derogatory evaluation that Sergeant Evans said she was going to file. The burden of proof was on Dorner and his attorney to prove that he did not make up the story. But the board, you know, the board felt that they failed to meet that burden. An appellate board 
concurred with the Board of Rights decision that Dorner was not being truthful, and he was ultimately fired by the LAPD in February of 2009. Now, normally when officers are dismissed or fired, there is no need for additional security for the board members. But on the day that Dorner was told he was losing his badge, armed guards were brought in to stand watch because of the fear that Dorner would retaliate. The LA Times reported that a police official present at the hearing said Dorner's body language made it clear how angry he was. This police official stated, quote, it was clear that he was wound up too tight. End quote. For the next four years, Dorner made unsuccessful appeals of his firing. To add insult to injury, on February 1st, 2013, he was discharged by the Navy. He had been promoted to the rank of lieutenant during his Navy career, which is equivalent to a captain in the other branches of the military. But he had not risen any higher in rank during the 12 years that he had served in the Navy Reserves. On the evening of Sunday, February 3rd, 2013, it was Super Bowl Sunday, in fact, a resident of a condominium complex in Irving, California, noticed a man slumped over the steering wheel of a car on the top floor of the parking garage. Next to the man was a woman wearing a blue dress. Both had been shot multiple times, execution style. Responding detectives noticed that the woman was wearing a large diamond ring and realized that the motive was clearly not robbery. The detectives counted 14 shell casings laying on the ground around the car and documented that there were power burns on the windows around where the bullets entered. This meant that the shooter was at close range to the car when the shots were fired. There were 14 rounds fired in an apartment complex garage, but no one heard them. Now, this caused the lead detective, Victoria Hurtado, to wonder if a silencer had been used. Security cameras captured the couple entering the complex around 7.30 p.m., but their bodies weren't noticed until about two hours later. At the time, Irving, California, was known as one of the safest cities in the United States. So the shooting brought news crews to the scene quickly. Just after midnight, the Irving Police Department got a call from a worried father. He had seen the reports of the shooting on the news and recognized the location as the complex where his daughter, Monica Kwan, a woman's basketball coach for Cal State Fullerton, lived with her fiance, Keith Lawrence. Keith Lawrence was a security officer at USC. Monica was not answering her father's phone calls after he saw the news and was worried, so that's why he called. He, in fact, was a lawyer and a retired LAPD captain named Randall Kwan. The same Randall Kwan who had represented Christopher Dorner at his police officer disciplinary hearings. Randall Kwan went to the Irvin Police Department and described what his daughter looked like, adding that she had been wearing a blue dress when he had seen her earlier on Sunday. The police department confirmed a father's worst nightmare. And as the horrible truth set in, everyone wondered who would want to hurt Monica and Keith. The two of them had just gotten engaged a few days before they were killed. In fact, Keith had proposed to Monica standing in flower petals shaped in a heart. The detectives asked Captain Kwan if he had any enemies. Were there any of his former clients that hated him? You know, he was the first Chinese-American captain that the LAPD had ever had on the force. 
and he actually led an anti-gang unit targeting Asian gangs. Could there be any gang members seeking revenge that he busted when he was running the squad? But, you know, Randall just kept thinking and thinking and thinking, and he couldn't think of even one. He had always been respectful to people that he arrested as a cop. And as a lawyer, he was respectful to his clients. His clients were, in fact, other police officers who were facing dismissal. He knew he did everything in his power to represent them as best he could. The Irvin Police Department faced an investigation with very few clues. An early lead, though, they discovered was someone was trying to stalk Monica Kwan while she was on travel with the basketball team that she coached. An unknown caller with a blocked number called the college, asking questions about where the team was staying, claiming to be the parent of a player. Thankfully, the person who took the call refused to give the caller any information. And when they asked for a callback number, the caller suddenly hung up. Around 1 a.m. on Monday morning, February 4th, Christopher Dorner was staring at his computer screen. Opened was his Facebook page, and he had just finished writing out all of his frustration, all of his rage, in an 11,000-word rant that he then posted to his Facebook page. In it, he named Sergeant Evans, retired Captain Randall Kwan, and others as people he wanted to seek revenge on for being fired from the LAPD. And he made these threats by making direct threats to these officers' families. In the post, it said, quote, look your wives, husbands, and surviving children directly in the face and tell them the truth as to why your children are dead, end quote. <gasps> That's crazy chilling. That morning, while opening an auto sound store in National City, an employee took some trash to the dumpster and noticed some military-looking gear on top of the garbage. National City is about 100 miles south of Irvine and just a few miles north of the Mexican border. The employee's first thought was that he could sell whatever this stuff was. But after examining the equipment and realizing it was police uniforms and equipment, he waved down a cop who was driving by. The officer examined the items that the store clerk had shown him. It was a bulletproof vest, ammo cans with hundreds of bullets, cans of spray paint, the kind that the SWAT team uses for camouflage, a police duty belt, holsters, a full-sized baton, and an extra-large-sized LAPD uniform. One last item that the officer looked at was a police notebook. On the cover were two names. Dorner and Evans, along with some numbers. The police officer was worried that the gear belonged to a cop that was the victim of a crime. He had his dispatcher contact the LAPD dispatch to see if the names meant anything to them. Evans was, in fact, a sergeant there, but there wasn't anyone named Dorner. The National City Police officer called Sergeant Evans, and when he called her, Evans felt like she was punched in the gut when she heard Dorner's name. For six months after he was fired, this was a couple of years back, she actually carried her service weapon with her everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. She even took it with her into the bathroom because she was so paranoid and worried because she thought Dorner was coming after her. After she received the call, she was on edge, but she had a shift that night. When she was at the precinct, she overheard two officers talking about Captain Randall Kwan's 
daughter's murder. And at that point, she felt sick to her stomach and she immediately thought that Dorner could be the killer. She called the Irvin PD who woke up Detective Hurtado, the lead detective that had been investigating Monica and Keith's murder. Sergeant Evans told the detective her suspicions about Dorner. And it didn't take long for the Irvin detectives to find some surveillance footage in the alley of Dorner in his truck, leisurely throwing away his equipment and uniform. They located a second dumpster that had more of Dorner's equipment in it, a SWAT helmet, a tactical backpack and a nine millimeter magazine with bullets in it. Monica and Keith had, in fact, been killed by a nine millimeter gun. And the alley where the dumpsters had been located were in full view of the National City Police Station. What? At this point, Dorner is either bold, has a death wish, or just doesn't care if he's seen. Like he's telling the cops to come and get him. A game of cat and mouse. Catch me if you can. Detective Hurtado tried and failed to find someone at the LAPD to give her any kind of background information on Dorner. She thought maybe, maybe Captain Randall Kwan, maybe he knew something. And when she called him and asked, Kwan was shocked. Yes, 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 he knows Dorner. He thinks that Dorner's crazy and that he has this kind of like hero complex. Another detective sent Hurtado a link to Dorner's Facebook page. And can you imagine what their faces looked like as they were reading an 11,000 word manifesto posted just hours earlier? It starts out, quote, from Christopher Jordan Dorner to America, subject last resort, end quote. What? Copied and pasted into a Word document, it is more than 20 pages long. It's a, it is full of sometimes incoherent ramblings talking about famous people, but at its core, it carried heavy threats to some members of the LAPD and their families, starting with the chief, going all the way down to patrol officers and everyone in between. They counted 50, I repeat, 50, five, zero people in all on this guy's hit list, including Captain Randall Kwan and his family. As a motive to killing Kwan's daughter, Dorner wrote that he thought Kwan was loyal to the LAPD and did not represent him well as a client. Of course, everyone was on edge, even though it had been years since Dorner served alongside the people on his hit list in the LAPD. They were now battling what felt like one of their own. Okay, True Crime Army, that is all I have for this episode. Oh, no, a two parter. Yes, yes, yes. I'll wrap up this story next week where you will hear how this story went from crazy to crazier. And if you're like me and can't wait another week, well, make sure that you check out the Patreon fan club at patreon.com slash military murder, where for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to part two right now. If you love this podcast and you want to show some love, make sure that you head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. It helps me tremendously by allowing others to find military murder and ensuring that I can continue to produce a good quality show for all of you. If you're already on social, make sure that you follow me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and join the Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode was written and researched by Myrtle, and the show was produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. 
and the music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you the final part of this military murder story next week. Podcast.